When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bill, it's been a while, but we got you on Real Vision eventually. How yeah, are you? I'm great. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So listen, you've been in this space for a long time, and you, you're new to many people, but not to others. But let's go back and just go through a bit of your journey. How the hell you got here? Where did you start your career? This, this kind of circular path of, um, I worked in cryptography when crypto meant cryptography, not cryptocurrencies. Uh, I worked on Wall Street. I was at Goldman uh, kind of went through a phase of like learning all about financial markets, fixed income, uh, built trading systems, designs, portfolio management systems. Uh, but then I, I went to, got the internet bug and ended up joining Netscape pretty early around the time of the IPO. And that's more or less been my 20 year journey now is just really focused on the internet eating the world kind of mantra that I've always had in my mind. And the, the things that have always resonated for me is how the internet can basically act as a great leveler and democratize access to anything, whether it's entertainment, media, or now financial services, which has been you know my big passion for the last 10 years, and have had a, have had a whole bunch of invest, investments and startups in that area uh, around payments, remittances, investing, uh, now culminating with, with Abra, of course. So talk to me about your, your, your crypto journey. So yeah. You start with cryptography, you're then in finance. So it's kind of, you're obviously going to meet this space at some point. When did you yes. meet it and how? So now keep in mind, when I was a cryptographer at the CIA, I didn't know anything about banking. It wasn't even really interesting to me. Of course, I, I made no money, so it didn't really matter anyway. I mean, I, I think my one of my sons who works at a movie theater makes more money per hour than I made working for the CIA as a cryptographer. So, so the idea of dealing with money was so foreign to me, it didn't even factor into anything. Um, and, and that obviously changed later, you know, getting to banking and then, you know, exits and, and startups, whatever, but, but it was a, it was a long route. I mean, I first started getting into banking, um, when somebody recruited me, uh, back in my NASA days from Goldman, because they put, they connected the dots on my math background and said, you, this would be amazing for you if you just dug in a little and they pushed me and I did. So that was a real, sort of a really long journey. And then the second part was payments. And so uh, at Netscape, we built the first credit card gateway for the internet to actually formally accept an encrypted payment. And then I ended up building like a whole key management business in Europe for Netscape uh, for PTTs or telecoms that wanted to basically figure out a key management strategy, not dissimilar to the discussions we have today about, you know, not your keys, not your crypto kind of thing. And, and, and then that basically led me down the rabbit hole of payments and banking, spent a lot of time in developing markets learning about how regula regulation and government, especially in the middle of this whole choke point thing, I don't know if, you're, if your viewers are familiar with what happened with this project choke point that the US government was, was basically executing to block services like in the remittance world and arms sales that they didn't like, totally legal services, but they basically cut off their access to bank accounts. And we're still dealing with the hangover of that. So in the meantime, I'm trying to build 
banking services in developing markets for the bottom of the pyramid, hitting all kinds of roadblocks that are just nonsense for people trying to store $25 in an account. And that led me, you know, after I had, this is maybe a year after I'd read the Bitcoin white paper to say, okay, I'm tired of this. There has to be a better way. At that point, I had already personally started going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I had done a TED what talk back. It? What year was this? Uh, 2012 was when I, I did a TED talk. Uh, at the main TED conference in early 2012, I think it was, so about nine years ago. And Bitcoin, I mean, nobody in the audience had even heard of it. Uh, Silk Road was was booming at that point. Bitcoin was at about $2, maybe $250. Uh, I was, you know, you could still mine on a on a good personal computer at that point. Uh, and, and so it was just a totally different time. But my interest was more about banking than store value at the time, because I said, hey, this solves a lot of problems especially with all the middleman problems I was dealing with in the remittance world and the banking world. And that really pushed me towards this model. Of course, later on, I, my, my interests evolved dramatically as we now into DeFi and store value to Bitcoin stories, digital gold, what's happening with, like I said, Ethereum 2.0 and this whole kind of uh, just shift to moving every aspect of financial services into some type of Ethereum-based smart contract is just incredibly interesting to me. And so it's been a long journey of basically taking everything I know. I feel like it's the first job I'm qualified for because after all these years, I get I have all these things that I understand around internet and marketing and banking and consumer internet and cryptography. And now all of a sudden I get to use it all in one job. It's kind of like a dream. Uh, I actually can't believe I get to do this most days, to be honest with you. And not every day, but most days. Um, and so that's, sorry for the long answer, that's kind of the long circular route that it took me to get into crypto, cryptocurrencies and, and, and why it's so interesting to me. And our mission at Abra is particularly around the democratization of access. So why did you talk to me about that Abra? How did you set it up? So you go from like, yeah. I get this, this is interesting. I'm interested in payments. Yeah. <laughs> what made you so, then? Right. I wanted to build a crypto-based banking service. At the time, it wasn't crypto, it was Bitcoin. I wanted to build a Bitcoin-based banking service where Bitcoin would be the core so that I could, in theory, eliminate middlemen, right? And, and you could have the option of storing your own keys, you could send money person to person. You could invest in other assets. Today, we call those things like synthetics. So I had this like big vision idea of building a, a banking application with Bitcoin at its core. Now, that's evolved significantly since then, uh, where I would say Abra is, is one of the leading like global retail crypto banking apps. But the original vision was very, very simple. I wanted a single app that would work anywhere in the world where anybody could access a single app to send money store dollars, store Bitcoin, uh, send Bitcoin, send dollars, uh, eventually invest in any kind of asset and using Bitcoin, right? So, so I, I've had this long held belief that, that Bitcoin is going to become a, a core component to collateralizing different asset classes over time. And, and that was one of the original tenets for Abra, which we don't talk about much because it's actually obviously from a retail perspective, very complex, but, but in the background, it's always been a core kind of technology component of, of what we do. But today it's evolved. I mean, literally it's it's in trading and investing in over hundred cryptos, earning interest on your on your dollars, stable coins, as well as crypto, uh, borrowing against your crypto balance, really moving in the direction of being that full bank for cryptocurrency. And ironically, now, even though we have lots of people with six and seven figure deposits in Abra, we also have people in the bottom of the pyramid countries putting four or five, six dollars in Abra in a single app. And I say ironically because it was really the developing markets that pushed me to do this in the first place. 
Um, and in the meantime, we've got every single aspect of the income pyramid or component of the income pyramid using this one single app. I don't know if there's any other app in the world, banking or otherwise, maybe WhatsApp, that has that gamut of, of income and, and kind of user profiles that we do now. So your vision really is in the end is to bring a bank into that for everybody. Yes. So anybody who has a phone, you have a bank. Yes, that's right. And I think crypto is, is the future of banking. And at this point, I don't see how that's, I just don't see a scenario where that's not true. I, I really don't see how cryptocurrencies aren't at the center of banking in the future. Now it's on the edge, but I think it's moving towards the center and it will take over. So when you go back and speak to your old mates from Goldman, uh, as we all do, do they get it now? And how do they perceive it? Yeah, they get the digital gold store of value story. For sure. Uh, it's hard, partially because you can't argue with a trillion dollar market cap and you know, nobody thinks Bitcoin is going to zero now. I think there's myriad discussions around, you know, where does it really fit in? Is it a fad? Is there going to be better technology? And, but, but nobody thinks that's going away. Right. As a matter of fact, I, had, I did have dinner with a colleague uh, who's on the management committee. And we had this exact same discussion. And then the second part of the discussion was, well, where is DeFi going? You know, what is what does DeFi mean? You know, is it really going to work? Can it scale? And and so that's probably similar to discussions I was having five years ago about Bitcoin, right? Well, will Bitcoin even work? That was the narrative five years ago. Does this work? Right? Is it is it just for drugs? Is it is it just for the dark web? And and now we're having analogous discussions about DeFi. Will it scale? Is it legal? Um, you know, what happens when these contracts are hacked? Et cetera, et cetera. All, all good questions, all you know, valid questions, but we haven't evolved yet to the narrative of or the equivalent narrative for Bitcoin. But I think it's going to happen even faster with with DeFi and all these kind of decentralized apps that are going to come down the pipe, whether they're on Ethereum or Cardano, faster than w- what happened with Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, when I look at this space and you look at that, the rapid pace of innovation going to DeFi, and then you see that the central banks have figured this out and are now having to bring out the central bank digital currencies. I don't see what role there is for the average money center bank in middle America or middle Europe. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think banks have a big problem, right? When when the bond markets are not looking good, uh, there's a hunt for yield and you're certainly not gonna find it at your community bank. Um, their value proposition, their value add is, look, look at it in the context of the internet itself. The only reason why you couldn't basically allow the internet to eat banking from the inside out like it did with every other industry is, is regulation. And, and the fact that governments print the money and they also decide who gets to distribute the money via the banks. And if that changes, there's no reason for them to exist, at least in the, not in the form that they do. And that's a real problem. I mean, if you're, if you're in banking, uh, for everyone, I don't think anyone else is going to care because I think over a 25-year period, what's going to happen is is that banks will become crypto centric and it'll just seem logical by the time it's done. And, we, and, and it'll be like, who talks about Kodak now or who talks about Blockbuster? And, you know, they were a, a central part of our lives, uh, you know, 25 years ago. And it's just logical that they don't exist anymore now. And I think I think that's what's going to happen to traditional banks. I just don't see the value proposition going forward. But if their moat was regulation, then... What is happening there? Because this is the big problem with DeFi. It's still kind of nobody knows where regulation falls on this. How right. do you think it's going to play out? Because it's, you know, because there's, there's there's kind of centralized DeFi and then there's truly decentralized DeFi, which is almost impossible to control. 
I, I think the regulators are so far behind. Oh, totally. So, so think about it, right? The definition of a decentralized system, at least to me, is there's no off switch. So once there's no off switch, and the two best examples of that that I know of are BitTorrent, which was probably the first, besides the internet itself, but BitTorrent, and the second being Bitcoin. You can't shut off either. I would posit there's no way to shut off either of those services today. And I think Ethereum is close, and I think it can get there, but not quite yet. But I think it's moving in that direction, even with proof of stake. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's not decentralized, blah, blah, blah. Um, so these DeFi services aren't quite D yet. Shut off Amazon Web Services, and you'll see what I mean. But I think in three or four years, there will be no more off switch. And at that point, to your question, what role does a regulator play if you can't shut something off anyway? Because there's nobody to go to and say, you're doing it wrong. You're not following the rules. Shut it off. Right. The, 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 anal the analogy I like with, with BitTorrent was they couldn't shut BitTorrent off. So the music industry started going after individual named users based upon IP addresses, uh, you know, with these RIA lawsuits. And they realized what a great idea that was after a few months and stopped doing it. Right. After everybody started hating the music industry. Right. So I, that's I, I just don't see, uh, you know, regulators starting to sue or go after individual users of these services. And at that point, there's nothing they can do. The only point of fragility that I keep trying to think through the fragilities as we get to that end state. The only point of fragility is your ability to interact with the existing banking system. That's right. 100%. So if you want to bring money back into the U.S. because you want to buy a house, car, pay your taxes or whatever, they still own that. Yep. That can make it very awkward still. They can just say, totally. well, if you've come out of these protocols or wherever it is, you can't bring it back in. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. Like If you look at what's happening in India, uh, the discussions in Nigeria, it's about the on-ramps and off-ramps. Even China doesn't say, hey, we don't, we're not going to allow you to store ones and zeros in your pocket, which is like saying, you know, banning Bitcoin, right? They're going to say, we're going to, we're going to basically regulate the on-ramps and off-ramps and prevent you from transacting. And we're going to prevent third parties from acting as trusted third parties that hold your crypto. That's the best they can do, right? And so it's going to be those on-ramps and off-ramps that are basically going to be the choke point for a lot of this, uh, innovation going forward. And some will get it and become centers of innovation. Some will put roadblocks in the way. Like I think India has 180 degrees, the opposite perspective on this. They could become a mecca of innovation for banking and crypto if they would just do a 180 on their ridiculous perspective on continually banning crypto and then having the Supreme Court overturn what they're doing. Why, why somebody doesn't get held in contempt for trying to do the same thing over and over again, I don't know. But put that aside, I really do think they, they have it completely wrong. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, because India's actually digitized pretty rapidly. Yes. They build this layer on with the open APIs to their, their UPI payment system and the India stack. And yep. They've got something really powerful. Right. Right. I mean, I would look, uh, the, the countries that should be like, I, I kind of look at it like, how do we leapfrog the West? Right. I mean, go look at, the train systems in countries that leapfrogged us, right? Because they built their trains in the 90s, right? Well, what about banking? Why isn't Indonesia, 
or or India basically saying let's base let's move our economy to this model over 20 years. And if they came out and said that, I think people would move there to work on this. And and as opposed to the opposite, which is people leaving to go work less so in the pandemic, but but you know, euphemistically speaking, moving to work on these projects that are based in other countries. And and I think this is a, a huge opportunity to reverse that trend. What about the trend that came out Mnuchin's last last favorite famous thing of trying to push through the regulation of KYC on wallets and holdings? How do you think that plays out? I think that was very misguided, and I think uh, I, I my understanding is even a lot of people at FinCEN, which is the regulatory body within Treasury that deals with that, probably considered that misguided based upon the hearsay from from my network. Um, and I think it was a feeble kind of last minute attempt in the last administration to exert control uh, over something that is basically uncontrollable. I mean, look, the Supreme Court has opined on software and, and software's role as free speech. And I think the way we think about CIP, uh, customer identification processes and banking as it relates to the Bank Secrecy Act is completely out of whack. Nobody challenges it because nobody wants to be the one that everybody's afraid right, uh, to take this to court. But I just don't see how the extreme that we do in banking is is actually legal in this country, but everybody's afraid to fight it. I'm not gonna spend our investors' money fighting it. I'm just gonna follow the rules because I don't know what else to do, right? And our customers accept it because they have to do it with every other service they use. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that there's gonna be more attempts at this. I do worry a little bit about the, the new administration, but I think ultimately they're going to lose if and and I think, you know, you see it like with Miami, right? You've heard about like the mayor of Miami. You see it in, in what's happening in Wyoming, a little bit in Texas. There are pockets of people that get it and eventually it's going to spread. Right. And I don't think it's I don't when I say it's going to spread, I mean, this understanding that you can't stop it, that we should embrace it uh, and that it has value is going to spread like wildfire. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. So switching gears a bit, your app has been running for how long now? It's quite a long time. Uh, well, the current version is about two years old, but we had an earlier version which, which was non-custodial. Now we have the, the kind of traditional custodial version, which is about two years old. So when you've seen, when you've onboarded new customers and your existing customers, what change of behavior have you seen? As Because yeah. there's... I mean, in the last two years, we've had yields. I mean, yeah. Yeah. monumental, right? There's all of yeah. these things. What have you seen? What are people doing? Yeah, it's a great question. So a couple of huge changes we've seen, even over the last like six months, I would say. The first is, is the amount of crypto deposits that we get off of exchanges onto Abra has gone from being 15% of our business like 15 months ago to being like 60 to 70% of our business today, meaning... I bought Bitcoin at maybe at Coinbase or, or Kraken, and it's just sitting there. I want to earn yield on it. I want to potentially borrow against it in the future. I hear Abra is a great way to do that. I'm checking out Abra. I look at it. I was like, wow, this app's amazing. I didn't know you could do all this with crypto. I'm not really a trader. There's really no reason for me to leave this crypto on an exchange. That is our business for those users is booming, right? And, and it's like millions every day flocking in. And and so we still get the bank wires. You know, we take unlimited bank wires from every country in the world. 
And that's great. It, it, it's it's for people who are also existing users moving money in. A lot of times I just say, I'm going to put even more in because I can earn 10% on my dollars and 5% of my crypto. And so we get people who do both. But one of the biggest changes is clearly the amount of crypto-based deposits we're getting. Even though we allow you to buy easily, just easy as anyone else, um, they're moving what they have into Abra. That's the first big change. The second big change is the level of sophistication in the users that we're seeing. We get a lot of new users. What's a key? Uh, what's the difference between these hundred cryptocurrencies? We have guides for that. But you know, there's there's this twenty five to forty percent of our user base at any given time that is actually really sophisticated now, and that creates a challenge for us because we have a huge dichotomy between newbies and people that that are like, I need this advanced stuff. And catering to that range of users is tough, right? So, so like one example would be, you know, we're not we're not a sophisticated trading app, and we're not trying to be. If you're a pro trader, you're not going to use Abra, right? You might use our OTC function if you want to put something in storage for long term, but other than that, you're going to go to a trading site and you know use all the tools. Now we have sophisticated people who were just investors saying, hey, um, you know, I, I want advanced entry order entry types when I use Abra, which two years ago, no one would have asked for that, right? So so we're now getting this like second generation user, um, which is really interesting. And like I said, these features are not uh, socioeconomic dependent, by the way. I get this request from, I, I have chief investment officers from funds using Abra with uh, seven figure positions, like in interest accounts. And I got poor farmers in Mindanao putting $15 in Abra by walking into a 7-Eleven equivalent with cash Philippine pesos and walking out with the pesos digitized on their Abra app. Same questions, by the way, no difference. They want exactly the same thing. Uh, and, and it's so this kind of evolution and understanding is been really interesting to watch. So talk to me a bit about the, the, the differences globally, because you've got a very global business. Yeah. You're seeing, as you said, two ridiculous opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. I'm really interested in the global part in the, yeah. You know, think about the US, we'll talk about that all day. But let's talk about, I mean, when you talk about Mindanao, I mean, it's like, okay, I, I want to hear about this. What's going on? Yeah. What are you seeing globally? So, so a few interesting trends, right? Uh, we take a tremendous amount of deposits and cash at retail. And this is happening in Southeast Asia, Central America, Middle East. Now, these users have to go through the same onboarding process that you and I do. They go through the same you know, know your customer KYC, where they take pictures of their IDs or passport or whatever they have, they're onboarded, but the cash is in their pocket. And so we give them, they have a different view in the app than you do. If you start up Abra and press add money, it's going to say deposit crypto, go use your bank. They'll have another option, which is deposit cash. And then it'll bring up a map in their area, which shows them where they can go to deposit cash. I mean, I could launch it in the US, but nobody wants that. Right. So, so. How the, Sorry? You, how the hell did you set that up? So, so what we did years ago is we started basically putting quietly these relationships in place with companies in the remittance space, uh, retail, that already had large cash businesses. So we used our network. So I used to run a remittance business, right, which I sold to Digicel in, in, in your neck of the woods. And it's their mobile money app now. And, and so I know that world really well. So all I did was basically leverage that network and started doing deals with these different cash networks all over the place. And I have a really good guy who runs that business for us now out of Southeast Asia, but he runs it you know, in different countries. And we've been quietly building this cash network all over the place. But again, it's for a very specific type of customer, to your point. Now, 
it, it, our users in Singapore are wiring money to Abra, right? Our users in Hong Kong are wiring money to Abra. Our users in Jakarta, it's a mix. Our users in Manila, it's a mix. We get half and half. You go into the into the, the remote areas, it's cash, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think that that's going to be true for for quite a while. Are they using it for crypto? Or are they using it just for remittance payments? I mean, no, it's it's, it's a lot of it's speculation. A lot of it's altcoins. I, we have people in, in developing markets that are buying alts. They're buying Ethereum. They're buying Bitcoin. They're also sending money. But I'd say it's 65 to 80% speculation on cryptos, just like us. Like I said, it's, it's no different than the seven-figure depositor. It's just a smaller amount of money. And it probably means even more to them on a proportional basis than it does to the CIO. Right? So, uh, and, and, and so I'm very sensitive to that. Like I'll spend time onboarding friends of friends who are, are depositing seven figures. And then I'll spend two hours at night answering questions from people all over the world who are depositing $50. And it really helps me to understand that there's no difference at the end of the day. If anything, that person is more passionate than the other person. And how did you get that reach to all of these places? Because, I mean, again, you know, there's a, it's a very US-centric world that we live in these days. Yeah. yeah. And people don't think that people in the Philippines on a remote island would even understand this because we're still trying to get people to understand um, it here. And the opposite is true because if you look at places where we're, we're popular in Africa, Southeast Asia, more people are holding crypto than in the in the US or, or in Europe, proportionally. Uh, and, and so the challenge for us has always been, how do we do all these deals, which was your first question, and then how do we integrate it in a way that has a, a, an easy to use experience and we have more partners, locations than we have employees. So managing that network is complicated and it has to be done in a way that doesn't tax the company because it can be all consuming. And so it's pretty automated. And, and so the way I look at it is, okay, we've mapped uptake of crypto and, and geographies to cash. And so that part of the business is like, all right, we know where we want to accept cash, but there's other payment types. There's SEPA in Europe, there's Faster Pay in the UK, there's Spain, Mexico, there's Interact in Canada, there's ACH in the US, and the list goes on and on and on. So what we did is we basically took Abra.com as the website and we built a marketplace and we built it as kind of a big test. We said, all right, we don't want to start adding all these payment types to the app. One, unless we know they work because we're always dependent upon a partner, right? Again, the on-ramps and off-ramps we talked about. And does it work? Um, will it scale if we get 10,000 people doing it in a few minutes, for example, as an extreme, uh, which might happen when Elon pumps Doge again? Um, and you know, is it is it going to be usable inside the app? So we ended up building this, this crypto marketplace on Abra.com. The best way I can describe it is it's kind of like Kayak for travel, but now for crypto. You basically say, I'm in this country. I want to buy this crypto and it'll show you all the payment methods that are available in your country. So like in Australia, there's like five payment methods. A couple are in cash, a couple are via bank accounts. And it says to you for this payment type, for this much money, here's how much Bitcoin is going to land in your wallet. And you can choose which one you want. And it gives us visibility into which payment types are interesting, um, you know, which ones actually work well, right? Meaning do they actually settle from the partner as fast as they say they're going to settle? Right, so that's how we tested faster pay support in the UK, interact in Canada, Spain, Mexico, and and now the ones that work well, we're adding back into the core Abra app. Right, so not only are we making really good money on the marketplace, which wasn't even our original intent, it's actually a profitable business for us, 
Um, but it's now allowing us to figure out which of those payment features to add into the core Abra app for certain countries. And the second part is localization. The app is 100% in English, and that's blown me away. Um, I, I, you know, we are going to localize the app this year, uh, but all these people are using, and I feel bad for it. I, I don't want them to. It's just we haven't had the resources and time to do it yet. But we are doing it now. The app will be in multiple languages this year. But even then, everybody's using it. Amazing. So yeah. go, going on to the other part, key part of what you do, talk to me about security. Because mm-hmm. this is, there is a, I think the space, and I don't know, and I want to pick your brains on this, I think the space is behind on the narrative that you need to keep everything in cold storage and, you know, fight for your life with your trezor and, you know, all of this stuff. And it feels that the reality is that storing with, online services, the high quality ones, is actually very secure. It is, but but there's a narrative here which is just as important as the reality because the narrative leads to the emotion. And, and people want to have a good feeling about what they're doing. The last thing that they want is to put 10% of their savings into something and, and just not be sweating the price, but be sweating the safety. Right. Whether it's true or not is almost secondary at that point, because if you're so emotionally distraught over what you're doing, the reality almost doesn't matter anymore. So you need to basically give people comfort and the reality needs to, in some cases, be better because most people don't really have a good understanding of information security. Right. So, I mean, I'm a cryptographer and I understand all that stuff, so I can actually ask questions of my team that a lot of CEOs can't ask. So, so let's break it down, right? So the first thing is the emotional part comes from a message of control. So the message here is what we didn't talk about is, is I'd say 35% of our user base, they use Abra ephemerally. They're not using our interest earning accounts. They're not borrowing. They deposit, they trade, they get out, right? The same day sometimes, maybe the next day. So their dependence on Abra from a custody perspective is minimal to none, right? And they just like that it's super easy. And, and most of them are using cold storage when we ask them. Some of them are, are using other wallets that they just, you know, they're used to. We don't care. It's fine. We care in the context that we want them to have control. And that's the message. If you, if you want to go offline with your crypto, it's totally fine with us. If you want to keep it with us, you can keep it in the trading account where you have 100%, 24-7 real-time access to trade. If you want to move it to the interest earning account, you have 24-hour, in most cases, access to it, even if it's multi-millions of dollars. And you're earning interest. And for that, you forego you know, real-time access. And we have that range. And, and that res- when, when people understand that, it really resonates, right? Um, then there's the practical aspects of how you manage this. And what we've done is we've built a whole kind of series of cold, warm, and hot kind of custody solutions that map to trading, interest earning accounts, our ability to move between counterparties who are borrowing, and then cold storage where we might be managing reserves that we need access to in a few hours notice. And each one has its own security requirements that we even go to the board and say, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's how it works. We're not, we're not going to share with you our secret sharing techniques and and you know here's how who here's who can't travel together and you know all the the details of the sophisticated solutions that we have to build go all the way up to the board and i think it's a key pardon the pun component of the retail crypto banking story is that you have a story that combines user control 
with an understanding that you have online funds and offline funds, and that the company that's managing this has a really good explanation of how they're managing each one of those things. And, and if the company gets hacked, why my money is not at risk. And that's a key part of the story. No company is unhackable. It doesn't, if, if you're online, some aspect of your company, if somebody's highly motivated, is probably hackable. And that's true for 100% of companies on the planet. I don't care who it is, including Amazon, anyone else. The question is, if they get in, what damage can they do? And I'm very confident in our case, there's nothing to hack. So meaning if you get in, right, you might be able to change the logo on the Abra.com website on Amazon, but that's about it. And, and that's hard to do. And so, you know, intrusion and, and detection and the way you respond has to be based upon, oh, no, but this idea of nobody's getting in, don't worry about it is a bunch of nonsense, right? Uh, there's way more people trying to get in than there are people trying to keep the other people from getting in, right? And that's always going to be true. I can't hire people fast enough to keep everybody else from getting in. But what you can guarantee is it's nothing to find when they get in. Right. And so anyway, it's a long answer, but the bottom line is, is that the story of security has many components to it. And you need to address the emotional aspect of this in a way that resonates with a consumer, not just with the CEO and the board. And it's hard because, uh, you know, not everybody understands cold, hot, warm storage. They just understand, hey, I've heard that there's been hacks at these exchanges. What's going to happen when you guys get hacked and why aren't you going to get hacked? You know, and, and it's very basic. Um, and, and so you don't want to talk down, but you have to give people this emotional comfort. And so what do you do? Can you offer them three different pricing tiers, for example, where you say, well, here's your levels of security, choose your own? No, you don't need to because, look, it's, 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 it's part of the offering. It's embedded, right? The fact that you, you have crypto in your trading account, the fact that you have crypto in your interest earning account, the fact that we're lending some of it to earn yield, the fact that we have some of it in reserve so that we can process deposits, it's just table stakes. There's, there's, it's not an offering in the sense of I have a custody offering. Here it is. Pick which one you want. It's I, I want to trade, so I have to keep some crypto here. I want to earn interest on my ETH, so I'll, I'll put it over here. Or I want to withdraw it to my hardware wallet. How do I do it? Okay, well, there's a withdraw function. It just goes to whatever address I provide. It's just table stakes for offering those services. The, the, the key, again, is are you giving users comforts that they just take it, take it on faith that this is best in class, uh, you know, world-class security that I consider to be completely 100% safe at all times. The other one about security that people still get confused about is how the space is earning so much yield and what risk they're actually taking. Yep. How do you think through that? Yeah, I think through it a lot because I manage 100% of my uh, liquid assets through Abra now, uh, cash and crypto. And basically the message, so, so I'd say three things, right? One, the first is we, the management team, we basically set up the interest earning accounts to be the product that we wanted for ourselves. We looked at the other products in the market. We said, what do or don't we like? Let's do it exactly the way we want. That's one. Two, let's be as transparent as we can as to how this works. I listen to podcast after podcast where other CEOs avoid questions. They don't talk about the percentage reserves. They don't talk about how many counterparties. They don't talk about concentration risk. And I said, we're not going to be that part. I said, we have nothing to lose by just laying it all out there and say, if this works for you, this is how I manage my crypto, go for it. If you want to use Abra to trade and you don't want to earn interest, it's perfectly fine. But we're going to tell you how it works. 
And the three is make sure that at the third thing is make sure as we're digging into these details of who we're lending to, how do we set collateral requirements on a per borrower basis? How do we set interest rates and on a per borrower basis that we're being smart, right? That we're basically saying, okay, if it's DRW borrowing with the trillion dollar balance sheet, yeah, they're going to have different collateral requirements than, than a three guy uh, hedge funds that wants to go Forex, uh, you know, levered on, a, on, on positions that they think are Delta neutral, but probably have systemic risk. So we might get 2X collateral from the Delta neutral, you know, three guy hedge funds and get 25% collateral from DRW because they could buy Abra hundred times over. Right. So, so you have to be smart about understanding that use of funds and you have to be willing to talk about it so that people understand that you're actually taking this seriously. So we, we run an investment committee at Abra that meets weekly to look at existing counterparties and adjust limits, for example, uh, onboard and approve new counterparties that have gone through two to four weeks of due diligence in the background around use of funds, compliance, and a bunch of other things, just like a you know venture or private equity. Um, and then we set rates and collateral requirements for, for every single partner individually. And that rolls up to be the rates. We don't start off saying, okay, the rate needs to meet 10%. Make sure you back into it. We would never do that, never. Uh, and the companies that are, I know, because we've hired people that used to work there that told us it's crazy. And, and, and so we will never uh, basically say, make sure the rate works out to be this. We'll say, do exactly what this right for this counterparty, and then tell me what the rate needs to be as a result. Liberty's leave policy was tremendous. Having the ability to take 16 weeks off, fully paid to bond with my child was an incredible experience. At Liberty Mutual, you can find a career that supports you at every step, even baby steps. We offer up to 16 weeks parental leave for new moms and dads. And because not everyone's pathway to parenthood looks the same, we offer robust fertility, surrogacy, and adoption benefits too. Learn more at libertymutualcareers.com and pursue your tomorrow today. And how do you see the evolution of these kind of supernormal yields? Because they are high yields, right? In a world yeah. of no yield, it's pretty high. So it's going to attract, it's going to keep attracting capital. And the less blow-ups and risks that get exposed in the space, the more capital it's going to attract. Yeah. How do you think it evolves? Because you know, what was interesting to me, and I, I spoke to another friend of mine about this too. And he's like, Well, I sold some of my Bitcoin the other day and I just keep it in USDC. Yeah. I'm like, yep. it goes, and I've suddenly realized I don't need to go back to my bank because if I'm not using the money in the, in the national world that I live in, yep. my bank doesn't exist for me. I don't need it. Right. Well, this is why I, I, I do refer to Abra as a, a crypto bank, right? Obviously, it's not regulated with a banking license. We do have a trust bank partner that manages the issuance of those interest accounts. But from the consumer's perspective, it's cash, it's crypto. Right. Hopefully stocks eventually and things, you know, other asset classes that they want uh, in the same app. So I think that you're going to see more and more people be willing to store dollars first and foremost. We get it. Our users are mostly crypto first and dollars second because that's how they find out about Abra. But we are starting to get people now who are coming in first and foremost with their big dollar positions and then adding crypto for a couple of reasons. One, because they have more dollars. And two, they're waiting for uh, to take part of that. Uh, stablecoin position and convert it to Bitcoin or ETH at the right price, right? Uh, but even then, they'll keep most of it in in, in the USDC or or TUSD position. And and so I do think that the demand for dollars has been incredibly high in my world. 
Uh, I think you're going to see an expansion of the first generation counterparties in crypto lending to move into tradi traditional lending, supply chain finance, P2P loan origination, um, other, other forms of finance. And I think that uh, as DeFi grows, as stable coins get used in traditional finance, I think that will have a little bit of, of, of downward pressure on rates because you know, you'll be competing with banks. Uh, but the demand has been so high, especially as as crypto prices are rising, um, that I think the dollar side of the business is going to be really good for a while. What blew me away recently, I was speaking to some guys in Singapore who were involved in option market making and a bunch of other things. And I said, tell me about kind of stable coin, particularly tether use in Asia. And they're like, you have no, nobody in the West has any idea how many corporations are using it yeah, I know. to do trade finance, yep. just to pay each other and not, and people are missing this whole thing. They think it's some sort of, it's, it's money laundering or ways of getting money out of closed economies. It's not, it's actually ways for businesses to pay each other. So we right. are using businesses using Abra for that right. kind of thing. Think about this for a second. Foxconn is a large investor, one of our largest shareholders at Abra. They're one of the largest lenders in Asia. Right, just in their supply chain finance business, and that is the, in my opinion, that's the future of supply chain finance because most Western investors are shut out of those deals because they happen too fast. Now you can basically invest in those deals in near real time, and you're going to see marketplaces prop up like you know you have Yield Street, Fundrise, Cadre that are basically offering uh, high net worth retail investors in the U.S. access to these 10% real estate deals. You're going to see the same thing happen in supply chain finance and P2P loan origination. And the banks are basically, in fact, this is part of, I don't talk about this much, but this is part of why I think the banks are fucked because they can't compete with marketplaces like that. No, they I don't mean, want to. I mean, you know, again, like a Malaysian exporter who's exporting textiles to China, right? If they do it normally, they have to go and apply for the export license of the money and the textiles. And, you know, they have to speak to the, to the central bank and, the Chinese side, there's no Malaysian uh, RMB markets. You have to go through all the FX. Yep. What they do is they do Ringgit Tether, Tether RMB. Yeah. They make instantaneous payments. Yeah. There's no restrictions on them. And they can, and there's also funding available by the markets. It's well. effectively a fully decentralized Hawala system that has no off switch, that no government is in a position to stop. And it's not like the person who's doing the minting, uh, whether it's uh, Trust Token or USDC uh, Circle, doesn't know who that counterparty is. They have to onboard themselves just like somebody at a bank. Uh, so I actually foresee stable coins, maybe even more so uh, versus central bank digital currencies, as at least for the next three or four years, the future of, of banking for supply chain finance, loan origination, but also the, the crypto banking, where, where it, which was the initial bread and butter. The other part of your question was what's going to happen like with, with Bitcoin and, and Ethereum rates, which are, you know, that's that's 75% of crypto collateralized lending today. Dollars is still only about 25 to 30% because it's still a crypto-centric world. That will flip in the next five years, meaning if we, when we have this conversation in five years, it'll be 80% dollars. And well, the only in, in today's dollar terms, if the, if the Bitcoin price goes up 10x, it obviously it'll be a little bit different. But but assuming that the Bitcoin price was normalized in today's value, it would flip. It, it probably won't in, in, in future price terms. So the question then, what happens to the rates on Bitcoin and Ethereum? Well, look at the um, the, the, the band it, it, as Bitcoin goes up and to the right, 
there's a 16, 15 to 18% spread above and below kind of that, that normalized stock to flow target price, which is holding, right? The channel hasn't been broken, right, for a long time. What that tells me is, is the volatility along the way to $2 million Bitcoin and, and uh, you know, 50,000 Ethereum, whatever happens is going to be the same as it's been all along. And so that means that all of these trading strategies that require Bitcoin, all of these plays on premium are going to keep going for many years, which means that the, the demand for Bitcoin is going to continue. Right. And so I think that we're going to be in a in a three to six, maybe three to seven percent range of Bitcoin and Ethereum interest rates for five years. I, I, I don't see how it doesn't change. Maybe. At some point, it has to change because it's a deflationary asset, obviously. You, you can't, otherwise you would be giving, paying 100% of Bitcoin in, in interest every month at some point. So the system eventually has to give, but I don't think it's going to give for the next three to five years. And it's the, it's part of the reward of what I call the front, the front, uh, what do you call the, the Navy SEALs that are the front men when you go into battle, right? They're the ones who are bearing the brunt of this transition to a new asset class. When, when Bitcoin is, is stable at, you know, $15 trillion in, in market cap, this is going to look totally different. I don't know how interest rates are going to look when that happens. I haven't completely thought it through, but the current model won't work, right? Uh, and, but I think you know. Then it depends what happens with the dollar at that point. Um, if if there's no more dollar, then all bets are off. I, I you know, it's, it's hard for me to get my brain around around what happens to to traditional yield curves and, as it moves to Bitcoin in that model because there's no there's no fractional reserve, there's no printing of money. Um, I've also thought that through and thought you know it's a weird old world right now where. The world's pristine collateral is U.S. Treasury bonds, and every time there's a lending problem, i.e., there's not enough collateral for the system, the Fed lowers the cost of collateral. So mm-hmm. you, as a collateral owner, gets less of it, and in fact, they make more of it. Right. But Bitcoin's the opposite, so I exactly. can't think it's going to have higher rates. That's my point. It just it's un- so that model is unsustainable in a deflationary asset model, and anybody who's thought it through realizes that. I think that we're in we're in a another six or seven years of transition to where it'll stabilize. And so after year five of the current cycle, I think the rates will have to come down, but I don't, I I can't say I've thought through what happens in a model where people want to borrow. So so, so the current theory is, is that, Hey, everybody's crypto rich who got in early, they're going to want to borrow against those assets. So the dollar rates make sense, right? But what happens if the dollar goes, goes away, you can't borrow at that point because there's nothing to borrow. You have to use the Bitcoin. Right. So so if that happens, then my theory is, is it's not about interest rates. It's about the the diffusion and basically the, uh, you know, the spreading of Bitcoin to every nook and cranny of the world where you actually see a massive redistribution of wealth. Right. So so and that's the Austrian theory. Right. Is that if, if a private money existed, that it would be hoarded in the early days. But eventually you would have complete total wealth distribution because you can't hoard it if it's the only money. Right. Um, and so that's kind of where I come out if if the dollar goes away in terms of interest rates. But I don't want the dollar to go away. Uh, I want it to I don't want it to die. But we're not helping ourselves <laughs> with our current policies. So, you know, the bond markets are scaring the shit out of me. Uh, and, and so I, I am starting to think these things through. And all it tells me is keep hoarding um, and, you know, keep borrowing and shit dollar shit coins. And uh, keep hoarding, and and eventually, you know, we'll see who, who wins. Uh, but big, I think Bitcoin wins either way. The question is, are we borrowing in dollars off of our portfolio, 
or are we simply spending the Bitcoin because the dollar is gone? I don't know which one is going to be. No. So to finish off, what is the most exciting thing that you're seeing in the space? Yeah, there's a lot going on. There's NFTs yeah. going on. There's the DeFi. There's all sorts of stuff going on. What is the thing that makes you go, God, that's really exciting? Yeah, I think this the, the this topic of I have a personal treasury in Bitcoin that I'm eventually going to borrow against while we're in this transition is a new narrative that I'm hearing every day, every single day. Combine that with stable coins built on the Ethereum network, and you basically have the future monetary system, at least for the next 10 years. And then we'll see what happens to the dollar. Like I said, if there's no dollar, then you're not borrowing any. So, so that is the most exciting narrative because that's the basis for Bitcoin Ethereum as the future of banking, in my opinion. Bitcoin as the reserve asset, Ethereum as the, the, the application layer that makes all of this move around. Uh, including, you know, the institutional aspects of, of DeFi, but also the retail-facing pieces that that companies like Abra offer. That's the part that's most exciting, or the story that's most exciting to me right now is that so many people are starting to to intuitively get this that they should be managing their personal treasury eventually in Bitcoin, or at least part of it now, and then eventually borrowing against it. Because the old way is, you make a bit of cash, you stick it in the bank, you look for a term deposit. You earn a bit of interest, and that's your reserve, right? So that right. it turns into that, an annuity for yourself. Yeah, and it, and you might have been slightly apocalyptical, so you might have had some gold as well. So that was your our previous reserve asset. Right and now, people are looking at Bitcoin. But my only thought about that, okay, I can see that not easy to do with a seventy vol asset that falls eighty percent every four years. That's my only struggle. Is we all talk about a reserves asset right now. Right. But once the, your new house has disappeared out the window and you're now only looking at buying a new car, you're like, shit, I need to sell some of this stuff. That's yeah. my only issue. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That's why it hasn't happened yet. But the question is, once Bitcoin gets to 10 trillion and think about how much in Bitcoin uh, value, how much is moving off of exchanges uh, so that it's, you know, in, in dollar terms, there's still more, more on exchanges than there was a couple of years ago. But in Bitcoin terms, it's way less. Um, and so as that continues to happen, I think those 80% drawdowns have to stop because it's 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 no longer a a kind of real time tradable asset in the traditional sense at least not in the first you know first generation sense it truly is at that point a store of value and that transition has then happened we're in the middle of the transition you can't have a transition to to anything like this without volatility it's like saying how do i get my car from 0 to 100 kilometers per hour well, you have to get to 10, you have to get to 20, you have to get to 40. It's physically impossible to get to 100 without those steps in between. Well, that's what's happening with the price of, of Bitcoin right now. And, and so, but once you're at 100, you can stay 100, right? You can choose to decelerate or not, but but this is the price we have to pay. And, and for us as the people on the front lines, right, we should be getting the benefit of that. That's what we think anyway. And, and so I don't think that the people who use it 10 years from now, we're going to look at it that way because it's not going to be going up and down in price the way the way it is now. Yeah, and also there's a number of things with that is as you go up the quality spectrum, volatility falls. So yeah. fixed income's got the lowest vol of all, then FX, you know, then equities, you know. So we, we kind of know as it goes, it loses volatility over time. Also, I don't know how much of the volatility of Bitcoin is actually the volatility of fiat money overall, because you know, that's another part of this equation. 
is what is the volatility of N2 right now? You know, th- these are things we've never really had to deal with before. Right. And I think, right. you know, I've been looking at some charts, spending time thinking about, okay, what does the S&P look like in, um, in Fed balance sheet terms? And bizarrely enough, there's been no bull market, really. It's just kind of traded sideways since 2008. Yep. And that's like, huh. Yep. And when you look at gold versus equities, they've kind of been in the same range. Yeah, they're both just a store of value. Yes. And so, therefore, I then looked at gold versus a basket of 27 global currencies, excluding the dollar. So give me yeah. an idea of what is fiat currency doing versus gold? Because gold is like the trusted understanding of value. Yeah. Fascinating is those currencies have underperformed gold since the global financial crisis by 60%. Wow. It's saying What it's kind of suggesting to me is there is a currency devaluation of fiat, not of yep. individual currencies against each other, not dollars against euros, right. but of all fiat because of, right. I mean, we've just seen the Reserve Bank of Australia today implementing yield curve control. That's basically right. unlimited printing of money if anybody sells them a bond. So when I look at that and I think, wow, has all fiat currency fallen 60%? And this is the bit that we're missing when we look at volatility yes. of Bitcoin. Are we measuring the wrong thing even? We are. I get my head around this. Right. Intuitively, everybody, even non-economists, kind of get the idea that there's a global debasement going on because, you know, my favorite you analogy because it, it's not in CPI, which is what exactly, right? Exactly. But but I go to my mother, who you know, I'm from New York, and you know she's a Yankees fan. She's got a Mickey Mantle card somewhere. I said, hey, how much is that card worth? She knows exactly what it's worth. I said, why? Well, nobody's got one. Everybody wants one. I said, great. Here's ten thousand more. What happens to the value? She's like, oh, I don't want that. Right, I don't want that. Well, no, 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 no. We can't have that. And and but you say the same thing about money, and people are like, hmm, yeah, you're right. Why do we do that? That's that's dumb. Because and, you can't see so, it. It's hidden. It's exactly, hidden. exactly. So that, but but that's the big lie is that the global debasement is death by a thousand cuts, and it has been true for a hundred years. And, and so it's just that now we're in an end game of a cycle, and the last time we were in the end game, it didn't end very well. You know, and and so I, I don't know how this ends, but I hope it's not war. And and, and if it has to be a, a move to another, uh, you know, either either the, the world comes together and agrees that everybody gets to write down their debt. I don't see how that happens, but I just don't I, I don't know how we get out of this. But I know that the last time it happened, it didn't end well. And and when I don't know how something is going to end, it really bothers me, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think in the end. Uh, Neil Howe, William Strauss's fourth turning was is like the framework for all of us. We don't know the answers, but we know the change is happening, and it's yeah. real. I mean, this is not noise. The internet is disrupting money and all value. This is so. You know, somebody put it to me that finance has now had now has a basically unlimited ten. So the total addressable market is every person on earth. If you're going to disrupt the financial system, that wasn't necessarily the case with Facebook and others. That's right. This is big, um, and you know, let's see how it plays out. Phil, listen, fantastic, really enjoyed that. Lots to dig into, and uh, yeah, super interesting. interesting ideas. So thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, we'll get you back soon. Thanks for having me. It was really interesting. Yeah, brilliant. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.